Hello and welcome to the penultimate Oh God What Now of 2022. I'm Andrew Harrison. And what a year it's been. This time last year, we were gloating over the North Shropshire by-election and rumours of Boris Johnson's cheese and wine parties. We were wondering if it might just be possible that the Conservatives might lose their grip on power. Since then, we've had three Prime Ministers, four Chancellors, two Monarchs, a full-blown economic crisis and a war in Europe. The Labour Party is between 15 and 25 points ahead of the Conservatives. Tory MPs are quitting their seats in droves and a consensus is emerging that, yes, Brexit is the disaster we all said it was going to be. So we're going to look back on the 20 worst moments of 2022 in two special shows. We're going to do numbers 20 to 11 today. And on Friday, it's the top 10 with Roz, Alex, Arthur and Dorian. So let's meet the panel who will be walking in a winter blunderland with us today. We're going to get the football out of the way first. It's commiserations to Marie Leconte after France lost the World Cup final to Argentina. But you were boycotting the tournament anyway, weren't you? I was, and also, so there's something weird, right, I think, about being kind of split across three countries, which is that I never really know how I'm going to feel about any given thing. Um, and yeah, it turns out just did not care at all about France being in the final. So I think I would have lost my mind had England or Morocco made it. But France, for some reason, I was just like, uh, like didn't watch it. And actually, it was quite funny. On the tube home last night, uh, I bumped into some very drunk, very happy Argentinians, and we had a lovely chat. And it was literally just after leaving them, I was like, Oh, hang on, they beat us. <laughs> I should not be like, hey, guys. <laughs> but you do get the double hit of Morocco as well. You know, you get France and Morocco, so you must be feeling generally okay about the whole thing. I am, yeah, no, no. So I feel like all, all my boys did a decent job, I think. My many boys. Good, good stuff. Tom Peck is the independent <laughs> political sketch writer. Hello, Tom. Hiya. Have you come down from the hallucinogenic highs of that? bizarre final yet yeah I, I watched it in a pub in Kilburn and there was a big French family at the table next to us and I mean I shouldn't really have cared but and I don't really know why but at some point in the second half I just more than anything in the world I just wanted to see those French children cry and, <laughs> and they did and it was brilliant you got, your, you got your way but the, yeah, the only reason I wanted to see those kids cry is because I really, really, really wanted to see Messi win the World Cup. I mean, I was there in 2014 when he lost the final, and I really, really, really wanted to see him win. Well, I was about to ask you, uh, apart from the boycotts, does, uh, do the England fans' phlegmatic grown-up response to getting knocked out portend a new era for football? But you're just saying you want to see little French kids cry, <laughs> so maybe, maybe it doesn't. I don't uh, know. You can't have France win it twice in a row. You, just can't, you can't have French people that I know celebrate winning three World Cups like within a relatively short space of time. It's just unacceptable. Hi, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> With regard to England, I mean, we're, we're a good team and we played well and maybe we could win Euro 2024, but also maybe we could not win it because there's lots of other good teams. We're better than we've been in the past. We're not necessarily better than the other teams that are around us. But obviously for England fans, the problem for such a long time is that we always conspired to be less than some of our parts. And now that we're not less than the sum of our parts anymore, it does feel a lot more healthy, for sure. That's enough football. The listeners will be <laughs> delighted to hear that. Also with us, it's Ahir Shah, comedian and actor who actually grew up in Wembley, so he's like absorbed a lot of football osmotically. Hello, Ahir. <laughs> Hello. So in Twilight of the Twitter News... What did you make of Elon Musk conducting a poll on whether he should step down as the head of Twitter and then losing it by 57 to 43%? So I was genuinely quite surprised that he did lose that poll because I assumed that all of those bots that he so claims to hate would have just come to his aid at the 11th hour if he was actually trying 
uh, to win. But I think that it's it's the story of what's happened since Musk took over, which, by the way, at time of recording, is only like 55 days ago, right? It's only slightly yeah. longer than a truss. But it's- he's just going through more and more extremes to ensure that he's the center of the internet's attention every day. And so it just has to keep escalating. And at time of recording, he hasn't yet posted a picture of his dick, but it's coming. It's definitely going it's, to, it's, it's going to happen. He never conducts a poll without knowing what the result is going to be, though. Do you think this was kind of suicide by opinion poll? He knows he's got to leave, but he's going to go, oh, well, the voice of the people, I couldn't ignore it. He knows he's actually wrecked the whole thing. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's why you might think that it'd be slightly like that last speech on the steps of Downing Street. You know, it became clear given the position of others around me when it's like, <laughs> no, actually, you were the one who... Um, but I, I do take issue with the idea that he doesn't do things without knowing the result. I mean, from the whole saga since his Twitter takeover, he doesn't feel to me like a guy who knows what he's doing one moment to the next. So even assigning anything that he does four-dimensional chess quality uh, seems extremely bizarre to me. And if anything, this has just uh, gone another step further to demystifying this uh, sort of guy who years ago people were like, oh, he's basically Iron Man. And you're like, no, he's just a like extremely divorced idiot. He's, he's just about Pace Pot Pete, never mind Iron Man. Yeah. That's as far as it goes in the Marvel Universe. So let's get into those 20 worst moments of the year, selected by our backroom team and obviously chosen for absurdity and ridiculousness rather than actual abject horror, because there's enough of that and the world's depressing enough as it is. Starting at number 20, from platy jubes to statey funes, the press and public reaction to the death of Queen Elizabeth II, where a desire to be honestly respectful showed itself in bizarre ways. Sport and theatre was cancelled for a few days. We kind of expected that. But also we had Morrisons turning down the beeps on their tills, the Met Office stopping forecasting disrespectful weather reports, and many people learned that Her Majesty had passed away from the official Crazy Frog Twitter account, <laughs> at True Crazy Frog. Um, Marie. As the person here with the most distance from the English and the British psyches, shall we say, did you feel you learned something from us from the way our people behaved when the Queen died? Um, Yes and no, I would say, because actually, so I, I was expecting something completely different, I think. So I was expecting basically probably three days of complete sort of like shutdown of the country of everything closed and, you know, kind of like full lockdown level grief. When actually what happened was kind of, you know, 10 days of tier two uh, is, is how I would describe it. So, you know, stuff wasn't necessarily closed and people seemed quite normal. We could do that weirdly in my in my uh, friendship groups. I was the one going, can we go to the pub? Is, is it allowed? And my friends were like, why would we not go to the pub? She's dead six days. And I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, um, but yeah, no, I mean, what I found, which again, in many ways was not necessarily massively a surprise that I feel that, you know, British people are not always maybe the best at, processing emotions and and again I think a lot of the more absurd things came from and I think that deeply human impulse of going oh a, a, a bad thing has happened I don't, I don't really know what the beeps we will make the beeps mm. silent uh, which is quite touching in its own way um but yeah no it, it, it was quite quite touching uh, if just slightly odd I suppose what did you make of Paddington Bear taking on the role of the psychopomp the mystical creature which de- guides departed souls across the river Styx you saw these pictures of the queen holding hands with Paddington well okay so my serious answer to this is actually I'll come back to what I was just saying which is again I think grief 
shows in mysterious ways and actually weirdly people clung on to the nice little bear and that's kind of what they used even though again like you know the royal family doesn't really have a link to Paddington uh, the less serious and probably more heartfelt answer is that I want Paddington to die like I never <laughs> ever monster. want to see that stupid fucking bear again I am sick and tired of it is there, I, is there no, a way to get a harder Brexit than the one that we already have just to stop that kind <laughs> no, of behaviour <laughs> I used to love Paddington I showed both movies to my mum like genuinely I, I, I was very 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 pro Paddington but but yeah the overdose Jesus Christ it was unbearable people leaving marmalade sandwiches at Buckingham Palace again you know head says isn't it fascinating how people process grief that heart says the bear must die the bear must be deported I stand with Suella Braverman I think this is pretty harsh on Paddington. But let's remember, she, like, she only met Paddington once. This is like this is worse than Paul Burrell. You know, at least Paul Burrell like actually someone... did work with Diana for a while. Is it like saying once in a conversation that you quite like frogs and then for the next 20 years, yeah. every relative who doesn't know you very well offering you frog-themed stuff and you're like, oh, oh. Well, I, I did look up, up a bit about the, the psychopomp, the, the, the thing that takes you from this life to the next life. And in Jungian psychology, the psychopomp is a mediator between the conscious and the unconscious, unconscious realms, often uh, personified as a wise man or woman or sometimes a helpful animal. So Paddington <laughs> oh. does fit there. Yeah, see, I, am, I, am, I, I live on the Elizabeth line and I've been waiting patiently for four years for phase two opening. And the Queen actually died, I think, the weekend before phase two opening began. And it's and it's only after her death that the Elizabeth line does now terminate at Paddington. Wow, oh. I don't know what to make of that. Ah, <laughs> oh, here, I mean, just uh, Mary just mentioned the leaving of marmalade sandwiches. Is it a, is it a bit mean of sort of snitty metropolitan elitists like me to to sort of uh, you know be amused at people coping in their own way? Yes, uh, really. Like I, I think like I'm I'm fine with criticizing the ridiculous stuff that like institutions and corporations have found themselves doing, uh, as they do with sort of any sort of social movement or big event like this, you know. But on on an individual level, like we don't run our feelings through committee in the way that mm. like Morrison's run decisions about self checkouts through like people signing off on things. It's just that you you react in the way that you react right you know like for example like i cried during the funeral and wasn't necessarily expecting to but i i do think that there was also to some extent like a performative element to some of the oh it's no big deal why do you care about this stuff uh that like also happens with like happens with sporting events or something which is like oh why do you care and it's like well it doesn't do you any harm that i like that it means something to me or whatnot so yeah that, i i think that it's it's fine for people to process things in the way that they process them tom we, we were told uh in in the kind of you know the preceding years when when ob it was obvious the queen was not going to be around uh, forever that that when she died everything would change and it would be traumatic for the british people but everybody seems to have kind of adjusted to charles pretty quickly and got straight on with harry and Meghan soap opera stuff has it really changed us that much? Um, <clears throat> well, well, like with any family, events come in waves in generations, don't they? I mean, I'm a Republican, but quite an idle one. I don't get angry about the royals anymore, principally because there's so much more to be angry about than there used to be. Um, but I have been saying for years that, you know, we've had the weddings, we've had the births, and we just need to get the two big funerals out of the way, and then we'll get maybe a decade or so's peace and quiet. But that is obviously not what's happened. I mean, the original and best tawdry piece of shit reality TV show is, if anything, improving, like with the Harry and Meghan stuff. Um, what you wonder is whether or not the Queen was actually quite good at keeping a lid on all of that stuff. And now that the sluice gates were just sort of entirely open. But what I would certainly say is that the Queen's death is kind of like the one last hit of the heroin addict, you know, before, before they decide to go cold turkey. 
and the Queen's passing sort of flooded people who are susceptible to such things with this big wave, monarchist, nostalgic wave. But it really was one last hit and the effect will wear off. And I'm not sure, but I would think it potentially won't be too much longer before people really do wonder what the point of all this stuff is. At number 19, Liz Truss's debut and farewell speech to the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, doing both at the same time, far and away the craziest leader's speech in memory. It targeted an anti-growth coalition of unions, remainers, green campaigners and podcasters taking their taxis from their North London homes. Tom, where, where did uh, Truss's speech sit in the pantheon of nutty uh, conference uh, speeches? I don't actually think it was especially nuts. I mean, it was nuts. Uh, it was nuts. I'm not sorry. Let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that it wasn't nuts. <laughs> there are many, many, many more or many nuts ones to pick from. I, would, I didn't sit there any more horrified than, for example, Theresa May's insane Citizens of Nowhere stuff. Um, the Anti-Growth Coalition was a pretty insane battle cry and it, of course, didn't last. But we all knew that she was finished before she even gave that speech. She, she'd been mm. killed off by her mini budget and it was a matter of time as she probably knew herself. I mean, I've certainly heard worse speeches than that one. Well, given the number of anti-growth coalition mugs and T-shirts that we sold, the anti-growth coalition <laughs> was actually responsible for growth. <laughs> and employment of people who make mugs and T-shirts in the north of England. We're, help, we're helping the Red Wall. Oh, well um, done. The, the, the whole trust episode, I mean, what does it say that, uh, I mean, even Dominic Cummings said she was the most bonkers person he'd encountered in politics. What does it say that a clearly bonkers person can get to the top of the political party? Everybody knows she's bonkers. She can become prime minister seemingly without any trouble at all. Every, and with the exception of a handful of people within the Conservative Party, the entire country knows that they're crackers. Well, it doesn't really say anything about anything apart from the Tory party itself, which has been in power for too long, has gone mad, um, has a, a massive bloodlust more than it ever has done before because every single every single bit of it has got an insane taste for, for carnage because they've done so much. And also mainly it just says that the Tory party is still in thrall to Boris Johnson. I think it's pretty well known that he wanted her there, hoping that she would implode an opportune time. She did implode, but not an opportune time. She was more useless and more mad than even he realised. Did you not see any trepidation within the Conservative Party in the run up to this? And the, 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 more, the more sensible uh, MPs of your in your in your circle? Um, yeah, going, I mean, are we really going to do this? I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not as on the inside as perhaps people think, given that I spend all of my time writing fairly abusive columns about them. They're not all necessarily ringing me up and asking me to come around for dinner. I mean, obviously there was trepidation from a certain number of them, who are, and those ones are well known, but I don't think there was much trepidation doing the rounds that hadn't been clearly expressed publicly. Those who thought it was going to go wrong made it pretty clear. I mean, Rishi, some of Rishi Sunak's things that he said during the hustings now make him look like Nostradamus, don't they? Except he wasn't Nostradamus. It was extremely obvious. This stuff was all on the record. What was going to happen was very clearly predicted. But Boris Johnson got his way because he's their sort of, I don't know, like necromancer or whatever. They, he he's their psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, yes. I know what I was just going to add, I think, is actually speaking to Conservative MPs over the summer who did not back Liz, I think there was a degree of private fear um, but then I think so what was quite interesting psychologically is perhaps that quite a lot of them were like well obviously we do not want her 
to become PM and we don't think is going to go well. But I think there was a level of denial that, that, that I think existed in the press and in the rest of Westminster as well of kind of going, well, she's going to be bad, but surely she can't possibly be as bad as. And then it was, like, oh, oh, no, no, fine. So, so I, I do think there was actually maybe quite a lot of that of going, Sh- surely, surely. Um, but yeah, then we all know what happened. And we all know what happened. And we, we have to give a shout out to the lettuce. Because the lettuce is just like one of the greatest things. I feel like the lettuce is one that genuinely I would love to read a study on kind of, I think there's a study in kind of humour there and actually how things are funny, become funny, stop being funny. Because I went on such a roller coaster where I find it really funny at the beginning. Very quickly, I was like, Jesus Christ, people are milking this. Come on, we've moved on. Then they put a wig on the lettuce and I was like, I am back in. Like, this is hysterical again. <laughs> and then and, and it was such an interesting thing of, again, going from funny to not funny to even funnier to you, et cetera. It's only funny when it's really not funny anymore. That's when it gets really funny. <laughs> At number 18, I've got one for you, I hear. He's one of your heroes, Raymond <laughs> Shishti, who ran <laughs> for prime minister and didn't get a single backer. How could they do this to the talented and charismatic MP for Gillingham and Raynham? I know, listen, RIP Raymond Shishti. <laughs> You are with the pub quiz answers now. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> like I, I just think like un- until you posed this, I had completely forgotten not only about Raman Shishti uh, running to become prime minister briefly, but about his very existence, which I think is probably a fairly common uh, position. But given who they ended up going with, in retrospect, who could blame him for having a go? You know, it, it was a mad decision that made about as much sense as any other mad decision that was taking place at the time. So fair play to you, Shishti. Well, I I did a a quick check to see what's happened to Raymond Shishti since this episode. And the most recent news stories on him say, local man to run to be prime minister. Like nothing has happened (laughs) since then. And, you know, in a way, I suppose that's good because every other Conservative MP has been in the headlines for appalling reasons. And at least he's kind of keeping his head down. I got the impression that he was almost like, like an internal Lord Such. You know, it's like (laughs) one of those candidates who's there on the podium smiling and waving, but he actually was inside the party this time. The next time that he's uh, on a stage at Town Hall, Count Binface takes the hat off and it's turned out to be Raman Chishti the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe maybe it is all just like a weird positioning game, right? So I looked him up. In 2010, 2015, 2017, his majority hovered around 10,000. In 2019, he got that up to about 15,000. So he might actually be a rare Tory who survives into the next parliament. And given that at that stage, there'll be about 12 of them, he'll end up being a major player in the shadow cabinet. So maybe we've not heard the last of him. At number 17, it's dot, 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 Wagatha Christie. Footballer's wife and untrustworthy witness Rebecca Vardy lost her libel case against Colleen Rooney over the leaking of stories to the tabloids. She earned herself a £3 million bill for legal costs. She said she was devastated and that the judge had got it wrong. Um, Tom, you're covering this epic of uh, legal uh, deliberation every single day. Yep. With the whole country falling apart and the entire world on fire, was it quite nice to have something entertainingly trivial about rich people to get your hooks into? Oh, it was absolutely outstanding. I mean, I've done a few big court cases before. I mean, I did the Pistorius trial in South Africa, for example, but usually like a big box office set piece court case like this tends to require something absolutely awful to have happened. And what was so great about this one, that it was about more or less nothing. It was just about, it was basically a fight that should have happened in the comment section on Instagram rather than in the high court at a cost of many millions of pounds. It was just magnificent, right? It was it was the language of the court and the people and the plummy accents and the Etonian barristers. And yet all they were talking about was the difference between stories and main grid, which none of them really understood. 
who'd been sliding into whose DMs and all the rest of it. And then throughout the whole thing, you've just got sitting at the front like a statue, basically. England and Manchester United's leading goal scorer of all time, just staring at an oak panel six yards in front of his face and not moving for seven full hours a day, every single day for eight days in a row. It was just absolutely, absolutely outstanding. What was your favourite bit? And the, the best bit by far was the, the day in which Rebecca Vardy was being cross-examined and she was having all of her WhatsApp messages um, that she'd written to her agent, Caroline Watt, and had to sort of painfully go through them all. And I think I'm right in saying that when she originally decided to sue for libel, even though she'd quite clearly done what she was suing for, she didn't really know that these WhatsApp messages were going to become part of the evidence because they were accidentally shared with the opposition lawyers. I mean, there's, there's, one, there's one bit where she is, she is trying to say that when Colleen Rooney accused me of doing this, she libeled me because I hadn't done it. And then she has read an Instagram message written to her by her agent, which says, and I quote, it was me. <laughs> Tom, would you, would you say that's the one thing we didn't want to happen? <laughs> Marie, were uh, Rooney and Vardy essentially providing a public service here then? I feel like they were, and I'm quite, I'm quite sad that I didn't actually really fully follow it. Um, but, but I feel like my Twitter timeline was certainly having a lot of fun with it. So, yeah. Marie, were you unable to follow it because you dropped your phone in the North Sea by accident? <laughs> uh, my lawyers have actually instructed me to not comment on this at this time. Um, but no, so I think we should have this once a year as a kind of tradition. Just pick two celebs to have a very, very stupid fight and somehow make it end up in court. I think that's quite a fun... Should be, yeah, again, yeah, it should be a tradition now. Well, speaking of celebrities in the biggest inverted commas you ever saw in your life, at number 16, a low point for politics, public servants, television, snakes, bugs, Australia, and Freddie Mercury's tribute acts. Matt Hancock on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. The former health secretary claimed that entering the jungle would allow him to reach out to voters in a new way and that he would raise awareness of dyslexia, aims he would achieve by being coated head to foot in brown goo. Um, are here. Has any politician ever abased themselves worse than Matt Hancock did here? Because it makes Royal It's a Knockout look like Mastermind. Well, it it was an absolutely fascinating decision from him to go forward and do that. Like, listen, I have no desire to read Matt Hancock's pandemic diaries, but I would pay extremely good money to read a full like psychological study of the thought processes that led him to take that offer. What, a kind of like Heart of Darkness thing where he yeah. talks about going <laughs> up the river and, you know... The yeah, heat of a thousand candles and all that kind of thing. Um, did it work for him, though? I mean, the British will let anybody off the hook if they mock themselves. Oh, he can laugh at himself. Isn't he funny? Hence Boris Johnson, for instance. Letting off the hook depends on the nature of the hook that one's on, right? And the, the problem for Matt Hancock is that his hook is the fact that in the national psyche, he is become the coalescing point for the failures of state that surrounded the pandemic, right? And actually, if you look into it, a lot of these things weren't directly like his fault, you know, like he mm. was around a cabinet table with a bunch of other people who were much less keen on lockdowns, much less keen on the prospect of vaccines. But I do think that there seems to be this human need for someone ultimately to be personally responsible. And because that someone has become him, uh, mm. sort of until and unless that changes, that's the hook that he's on. And going on something like I'm a Celebrity is not what's going to get him off it. Well, it's it's kind of, 
you do those things when you want to demonstrate or you're able to demonstrate your charisma and your kind of ability to sort of take the blows and come out of it with a with a uh, you know sort of laughing ruefully and he's a guy who appears to have no charisma of any kind so he's <laughs> not, hasn't really got the skill set to go into the jungle and come out being liked so the whole thing makes no sense on so many levels, right? Like with, with that in mind, for example, like you say like, oh, he was paid £400,000 uh, for it. The money thing seems baffling because like, let's say Boris Johnson, since leaving Downing Street, has clocked over a million for a handful of speeches. And again, you say like, all right, Hancock's not a charismatic speaker. But Theresa May has also made hundreds of thousands for speeches and stuff since leaving office. So there's no reason that someone like Matt Hancock couldn't have made far more money than he did from I'm a Celebrity, just traveling around the world, reasonably anonymously giving speeches. So it speaks for something much, much deeper that he actually chose to do this. And maybe that is a desire for rehabilitation and thinking that this might be the way. Uh, It just seems to me a really weird thing to think would work. Well, maybe it's like he's, as we know, politics is show business for ugly people. And maybe he figured he'd like try show business for showbiz people. I don't really know. <laughs> I was just going to say quickly, I think the thing that really puzzles me actually about I'm, I'm a celeb, so I, I've, you know, having had to think about it a lot like everyone else, uh, you know, despite our best efforts, is that so clearly he wants to reinvent himself. That's his thing, right? That's why he does it. But then, you know, he, he didn't reinvent himself in a meaningful way because I feel like if you're going to do that in, you know, in the same way that if you want to have a makeover fashion wise you've got to change something you've got to have mm. a thing and he doesn't have a thing um, because I think after the pandemic he tried to launch himself into crypto and then obviously that that went <laughs> tremendously That's dare a really I say great way to demonstrate that you're a trustworthy likeable person isn't it <laughs> crypto but no, because he did actually, and that was his thing for a bit. He tried to become the crypto guy in Parliament. Obviously, that failed. And the problem is, he was like, hello, Britain, tis I, the new Matt Hancock. Oh, hang on, I actually don't have anything new to offer whatsoever. So he ended up becoming the COVID guy again. And that's what I find just entirely puzzling. Hmm. Tom, uh, his diaries came out around the same time as this. Yeah. Even the Telegraph called them Partridge-esque. Uh, they're all about how nobody listened to him. Is he going to go down as any kind of emblem of this government, or is he just going to go down as a bit of a nobody and a bit part person? The, the diaries and the I'm a Celeb decision are kind of um, epistemologically similar in a way, in the sense that with the I'm a Celeb, in my view, the 400 grand figure arrived at his inbox, he immediately said yes, and then he had to come up with some sort of retroactive way of justifying it. And that is, of course, the entire way in which the diaries are written. They are, they are, they are not diaries, they are a rewriting of history, to justify it and to make clear that he was right at all times, even though he very obviously wasn't, and anybody can see that they're utterly ridiculous. I mean, I haven't fully made up my mind about Matt Hancock and his legacy or who he was or what will happen to him or how history will remember him. I mean, sometimes I try to forget that in 2019, I genuinely wanted him to win the Tory leadership contest, at least like before it started. I mean, he's just ultimately a guy who used to be George Osborne's chief of staff, and he thought he was, you know, a made man. He thought he was going to cruise comfortably along in the world of happy, clappy, Cameroonian-ism. And then Brexit happened, everything turned dark, and he chose to battle on in a world that he wasn't cut out for, and he's ended up horribly, horribly disfigured. And that is how he will be seen. I mean, there's there's been lots and lots of intellectualising about I'm a celeb. I mean, there's not much of any interest to say about it, really. There's no defence for doing it. He just wanted the money.
continuing our countdown of the worst moments of 2022. At number 15, there, there, John Deere, it's Conservative MP Neil Parrish resigning after watching porn in the House of Commons when he claims he was looking for tractors. The upstanding member for Tiverton and Honiton claims he accidentally stumbled upon the porn site while searching for agricultural equipment and then in a moment of madness went back and looked at it again. He later told the Times, I've got to live with being the tractor porn MP. Uh, Marie, what are things coming to when an MP can't Google ploughing, backhoe or massive heavyweight equipment in the Commons <laughs> without getting into trouble? I mean- Right, you know, isn't it like a no, PC gone mad? I can't believe that. You know. <laughs> it's JCB <laughs> gone mad. <laughs> if, if you can Google porn in your own place of work, in full view of your colleagues, what has the world come to, honestly? It's the woke mob. It's destroying <laughs> You should have gone on strike, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, friends said that he was searching for a combine harvester called the Dominator. <laughs> Does that perhaps explain it? The one and only Dominator. You know, it's actually one of those weird things where I'm inclined to say, you know what? Maybe. How, how can you possibly come up with that as an excuse? So I'm generally just like, it may, it may genuinely be that he Googled that. And then there was a little Google, t- uh, Google ticker thing that said, oh, some of the results are, you know, for adults only. And he was like, oh, I wonder why. And, you know. Because yeah. <laughs> you, be, you need to be a grown up to drive a tractor. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. At number 14 in our countdown, it's a major announcement. Donald Trump's series of collectible digital trading cards, which are definitely not NFTs, except in the middle of the video, he says they're NFTs. Tom, can you explain what these remarkable items are with their illustrations of Trump as a superhero with lasers coming out of his eyes? I mean, obviously, I can't explain what they are because I've tried my best (laughs) to understand what NFTs are, but I, I simply can't understand, apart from the obvious, which is that they're meaningless nonsense, but you're betting that there's some like there's likely to be some other idiot who'll buy this meaningless nonsense off you for more than you paid for it. And that does really seem to be all that it is. Um, and these are these are Trump's ones. So if you want to give Trump money, which lots of people do, you can now give Trump money via being the exclusive digital rights holder to a JPEG of him dressed up as a cowboy. And people like, want to do that. And, and, and they're welcome to. And <laughs> nothing you can do to stop them. It is an astonishing sort of piece of... Uh, Bathos, I suppose, and everybody's expecting this to be his announcement that he's definitely going to run for president and it's all on again. And then, then it turns out that his announcement is basically pog. You know, it's basically, <laughs> or, or what I like with a guy that could describe it as broke him on, <laughs> given the state of Trump's finances. I mean, this time last year, our, our event of the year was definitely the uh, press conference outside the garden centre and sex shop. I don't think this hits the same heights as that, but as you go into it at every level, there's a new wonderful thing in these digital training uh, playing cards. For a start, the artwork is all stolen from people, you know, just random websites and Etsy, and they've just photoshopped Trump's head onto a spaceman, not even centred. The other is that, like, you you get the oppor- you buy one, you get the opportunity for one person to have dinner with Trump. But then the terms and conditions are so tiny that it's very clear that nobody is going to be able to to do this. It does seem to cross some sort of a line for Republicans. Even Steve Bannon said, I can't do this anymore. I mean, it would be somewhat ironic if it wasn't (laughs) insurrection or treason or treating with Putin or financial crimes that sink him. But Pokemon cards with his own face on. I mean, I think he's already sunk, uh, to be honest. I mean, I do say that with some trepidation because... I will let you in on a little secret. I did not think he was going to win the 2016 election. That rather took mm-hmm. me by surprise. So you have to be careful when you say that he's sunk. But the midterms weren't great for him, were they? Yeah. And the Republican Party doesn't seem to be enough of them that actually want him anymore. 
So I think his his um, money raising exercise is in his typical tawdry way. And the thing is, he hasn't changed. He's always been this. Those 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 trading cards things. They're entirely Trumpy, and they're the sort of thing he would have done in the eighties. If if but life was different in the eighties. Trading cards were bigger in the eighties. At number thirteen, be still Maurice beating heart. Emmanuel Macron unbuttons his shirts during France's presidential campaign, exposing an awful lot of hair. And the world of Twitter swoons. And the listeners, you should see the face of Marie right now. Mm-hmm. Um, are younger voters going to go for a 44-year-old guy with a load of Burt Reynolds going on under his shirt? So I would say that, first of all, my heart is fine, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for asking. Thank you for your concern. Just checking. Uh, no, I, I, I don't know, man. Like, I, I, I did find it weirdly endearing in a way because I think Macron just loves a photo shoot. That's nearly cool, but actually just ends up being quite lame. Like he's done quite a lot of them. Like the, the, there's, he's got the vibe of the kind of like, again, nearly cool stepdad. Well, like it, it, you're nearly in your kind of the grumpy teenager and you're nearly like, oh, actually my stepdad's quite cool. But then he'll do something and you'll go, oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, no. Oh, no. Mm. It was a bit try-hard, I thought. I mean, undoing two buttons is okay, but this was like right down to his navel very nearly. I mean, to be fair, that's France, though. Was this the moment when he secured the presidency? I hope not. <laughs> no, I've got nothing all to add, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Andrew, I, I think that you're reading more into this than anyone else. Uh, <laughs> this, was, this was added to the list by, by popular acclaim in the uh, in the back room. There was they were unanimous actually. It had to go on the list. Very, very um, the no, fulcrum. Oh, actually, no, no. Because what I will say actually is that the French press ended up being way more amused by the Brits going mad about oh, really? it than by the picture itself. Oh no, no. Literally, people are. Like, Yet again, the Brits just have a really, really weird relationship with anything, even vaguely sexual. Yep. We did not talk about the picture, yet somehow they were like, ooh! We didn't get where we are today without having a really <laughs> weird relationship with anything sexual, Marie. It's made us what we are. <laughs> it's a sound foundation. Okay, this makes more sense then. If it turns out that it's the British electorate who are <laughs> obsessed with huge amounts of chest hair, then it's unsurprising that we were the first to get an Indian prime minister. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> At number 12, the absolute tower of nonsense that was Keir Starmer's beer gate, in which the leader of the opposition is filmed <laughs> through a window by James Dellingpole's son drinking a beer in an MP's office back in April 2021 when COVID restrictions were in place. The Daily Mail runs two weeks of hysterical headlines bullying Durham police into investigating it. And £101,000 of public money later, Starmer is found to have done absolutely nothing wrong. Uh, here, as attempts to uh, distract from Johnson being the first sitting prime minister to be convicted for breaking the law, this was pretty relentless, wasn't it? It was pretty relentless. And, you know, 100 grand, you could buy a quarter of a Hancock for that. That's, uh, that's <laughs> You're coming up to decent, decent sums. Uh, it was. It, and, you know, like... To me, like I think to all of us, and like I'm sure everyone listening to this, it, it's difficult to say what impact this had because we we are the sort of people who looked at those twelve days or whatever yeah. email headlines, thinking, "Oh, like they're doing this again, really." But then we are, of course, people who look at any Daily Mail front page and think, "Well, okay, probably the opposite of that is what's true." And uh, you know, my, my apologies if it transpires that Dan Hodges has been a loyal listener this entire time. No, he really has. Warden Hodges does Uh, not listen as far as as I'm aware um, So I think that the the attempt such as it was was presumably to 
further try and inculcate the sense of quote unquote they're all the same and yeah uh, well maybe maybe good old Boris was doing it but isn't that dastardly Starmer exactly identical and I think that that was always going to be a difficult thing to pull off because the major thing about Johnson and Starmer was that they very obviously weren't the same just in in their inherent character right like part of the reason why Johnson became prime minister in the first place is that he seems like the platonic ideal of the dude who goes oh they said I couldn't have a party so I had two right mm. like that's that's how Brexit got pushed through or 22 or however many he did have in the end uh right and while I don't know what he was like when he was younger I suspect that it's been a very long time if ever since anyone sang Keir Starmer's having a party bring your vodka and your charlie right like it's not <laughs> that guy uh so I think that it was the Daily Belt desperately trying to run this thing that that was fundamentally never going to work and happily didn't work Tom, in in the, in the circles you've been moving in this year, was, did anybody treat this to any degree of credibility? Were you having it hyped up at you? Um, I, I have to be honest. I, I did think for a little while that maybe there was something to it. Um, um, not 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 for that long. I mean, especially when they couldn't really. They made all those mistakes in. They said that Angela Rayner wasn't there, and then they admitted that she was there, and that's the sort of thing that is not very helpful. Um, but it obviously turned out to be bollocks but I, th- I think I think what's interesting is that the Conservatives are probably still pretty proud of it even though nothing came of it they were immensely proud of it whilst it was going on and it certainly um, shut everybody up about their own parties for a couple of weeks and even if nothing comes of it then that will do that that's that's still that's still a win I mean I think I'm probably right in saying that the guy who uh, was behind it from a from an attack point perspective perspective the Tory sort of head of attack was that guy Ross Kempsell um, who I know and quite like, and who is, if we are, if the truth is to believe, shortly to become ennobled for his efforts, despite being, I think, about thirty-three years old, for his um, for his efforts on 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 Beergate, and it did leave us, of course, with one of Boris Johnson's final flourish of the dispatch box, in which he called Keir Starmer Sir Beer Corma, uh, and yet even so, appears to be able to make a million quid in about three months of public speaking, despite very publicly showing himself to not necessarily be the first-rate wit that he imagines himself to be. I think about Sir Beer Cormer nearly every day, I would say, still. <laughs> like, it's something that's just really got into like, a really nasty corner of my brain and it will never leave. But they're like two of my favourite things. <laughs> and the problem with like, yeah, beer, curry. I mean, Cormer's a bit, you know, not quite what you want, but it's, you know... <laughs> So we've reached the halfway mark in our worst moments of 2022. At number 11, but not at number 10 anymore, Boris Johnson returning to his plough. Dragged out of number 10 on the 7th of July and signing off with the inevitable classical reference and lack of good grace. Um, Tom, this was without question the most ignominious end to a prime ministership. And he blamed his own, he blamed the herd, not his own failings. This this almost seemed to wash for five minutes. Did we just become inured against him and his lack of class? Well, I, I don't think so. Do you feel inured? I don't feel inured to it. And ultimately, neither did anybody else. I mean, he won a thumping majority two and a half years before that happened. And there he was out on his ass. And the only reason, the only reason is his own character. Like the Conservative mm. Party correctly calculated that the public were never going to vote for him again because they couldn't believe a word that he said. So they got rid of him. And it was, it was obviously it was a horrific speech given by a horrific person. But in a way, it was quite encouraging because all this stuff that we'd all said about him for so long, about how he thinks that the rules don't apply to him, well, what do you know, mate? They do apply to you. 
you are out on your ass and you are no longer in the job that you prize above all else. And it's for no other reason, absolutely no other reason whatsoever than your own personal failings, your own character. That, that speech, that leaving speech was, was a good thing in a way because it, it's a reminder to everybody, no, he hasn't changed. No, he's exactly who he's always been. And he is exactly who he will be again, given the chance. Um, all of his proxies said that he'd go on to put hay in the loft as if he was some kind of starving tenant farmer. He has gone on, <laughs> as we've mentioned, to make a million quid in public speaking while not doing his job uh, as MP for Uxbridge. I mean, given that he harbours some kind of ambitions about coming back at some points, is that a good look flying around the world, Marie? You know, public speaking all over the show? I, so what I what I do still, despite myself, find quite interesting or compelling about Boris is that he does clearly like that. There's a sort of slightly mental optimism that's clearly sort of like sits deep within his bones, where nothing will ever touch him. Everything will always be okay, and that's why he can stop being prime minister and then go give speeches and take lots of money from I'm going to assume at least some partially dodgy people even though he wants to become prime minister again, and it'll be fine. It'll be fine because, you know, things will always work out. And I do, so my slight serious point on this is that actually I think that in a decent dosage, that's actually a quality that's really, really good to have in a politician, especially mm. a campaigning one. Actually, you do need people in parliament who, you know, will keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting, thinking, you know, like if, if I just keep going, I'll just ignore everything around me and keep going and then eventually I'll win. That's good. But he, he's kind of like, uh, how do you say in English? Obelix? Obelix. Obelix. Yeah. Yes. He's kind of an obelix. Well, like, he fell into that potion as a child and I think and got way too much of it. And as a result, you know, it's kind of turned out to be a massive sort of gigantic character flaw instead. Just running around knocking things over mm. with a horrible, <laughs> uh, yeah, the horrible paunch. Um, I hear that shot of him sitting in front of a Union Jack when he'd supposedly flown back with his definitely 102 supporters to definitely be nominated, looking like the most deflated sack of laundry you've ever seen in your life, with the most pitiful thumbs up you've ever seen. He looked completely exhausted. That was my pick of the year, actually. I want that as my wallpaper on my phone. Um, <laughs> do, do you think we've seen the back of him? So I suppose at the moment we don't know if he's going to be running at all in the next general election, I get a sense that he may well prefer, you know, putting, as we said, a fucking fuck ton of hay in the loft uh, over the course of the next few years and always being the person who, oh, they could have called out for me and I could have saved them, but I'm just going to be, no, I'm doing my own thing now. That may end up being a, an internally preferable thing for him to to always be thought of as oh why did we ever get rid of him and wouldn't it all be better uh, if he were the one who's able to see us through because I think that it takes a while for people to sort of coalesce in a view that they've made up about someone uh, like at, at that level of politics but then when when it has been coalesced like it gets made up hard right and mm. doesn't seem one for changing. Uh, and so, again, in the same way that Matt Hancock has sort of become the the personification of the sort of assorted coronavirus failures of state, he has become this sort of character of the lying in politics and the level of deceit that surrounded uh, everything that he was involved with. And I think that that takes too long, if ever, um, to come back from. But, you know, hold that for the... 2032 edition where we're all bemoaning the fact that he is uh, rocked back into uh, number 10 and this time just fully barricaded the door shut behind him. 
come to the end of part one of the worst moments of 2022. Be here on Friday for the top 10. We're at the end of this edition, and that means the last escape routes for the year. What have the panel been watching, reading, and listening to in order to make the political world more bearable? Are here. I have been watching, like many, many people, uh, the BBC sort of game slash reality show, The Traitors. Uh, which, if you've not watched, is properly, properly <laughs> brilliant. Uh, it's like m- many people will have played like Mafia or Werewolf or like party games like that. And it's sort of that turned up to the nth degree, plus a bunch of like challenges to win money for the part uh, and everything. It's um, surprisingly psychologically stressful uh, to watch occasionally, even though you're on the outside of it. I certainly wouldn't like to uh, be a contestant on it but if you're into sort of game shows reality shows and stuff uh well worth a look in what is it that makes it different because i just look at it i think it's claudia winkleman and a lot of people in the house i just oh my god it's brilliant Mm. why is it brilliant it's the format on paper but like any format on paper you're like okay that's a decent uh format for a show but then it's who you put in uh to that thing and i think that they've just got the perfect group of people in order to get the most out of the format Mm-hmm. Um, Marie, how about you? Um, I am going to remain incredibly on brand, I'm afraid, and say that I really, really enjoyed Wednesday, uh, the new Adams Family Netflix show. Uh, and I feel like, you know, I feel so blessed to live in this era as someone who very specifically is a former goth and still a goth at heart, <laughs> but who just, but under no circumstances, can actually handle actual gore or scary stuff. Right. <laughs> so it's somehow, I think, yeah, popular culture is so full now of stuff that looks goth, but actually is not scary at all, and it's quite fun. Uh, so that, you know, that, that's been delightful. And I have been, I've just started reading uh, The Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt, uh, I can't, which I can't really talk about quite yet because I've just started it. But um, I read Ablutions by him earlier this year, and I think I mentioned it on this podcast, which was probably one of my favorite novels of the year. Like, was just, he's just one of those people where there's a level of prose where you're like, I didn't really realize that it was possible to write that well. And not in a poncy way, though. It's just like, you know, it, it, it reads very quickly. Um, but yeah, just w- one of those incredible people who just writes so well, it should probably be legal. Mm. Tom, how about you? Yeah, I always find this a bit of a struggle because since my daughter was born three years ago, I've basically become entirely culturally barren. But what yeah. I've got written down in front of me is traitors, the traitors, the traitors. <laughs> oh, my fucking God, yeah. the traitors. Right. Um, and we have kind of already done that. Like, Mrs. Peck started watching it and I did my usual, like, why do we have to watch this rubbish? And now I'm like on the verge of breaking into the BBC to steal the tapes. I just want to know so badly what happens. I mean, I actually know someone, probably shouldn't say this, like on the inside, there are no spoilers here. Um, But I have been told it gets even madder. And also not to forget that a large number of the contestants are very, very, very stupid. Oh, right. So is this, spe- this adds a special dimension to the, uh, the appeal then, does it? It's like a sort of, it's like a really, really, really like sadistic The Apprentice, but just all boardroom, basically. It's like constant <laughs> boardroom, no messing about. The woman who is, sh- is surely going to win it, this Welsh estate agent, I mean, have we spent quite a bit of this podcast talking about Boris Johnson and how he's become the public face of lying? I mean... He is, he's been made to look like Mother Teresa by this <laughs> Welshwoman, who must be the most accomplished liar that's ever lived. I mean, it's phenomenal. How strange she became an estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> Astonishing. <laughs> well, my choice of escape route, I don't know whether I've mentioned this in the podcast before. I don't think I have. Um, it's a TV series called The Expanse, which is on Amazon Prime Video. 
And what it is, is the most epic space politics drama you will ever see. It is, I think we're 500 years in the future. Mars has gone independent. The asteroid belt is full of miners who are all dirt poor. And it's about the political tensions between all of these locations. Earth is rich. Mars is kind of like China, sort of a bit totalitarian, a bit uniform. And the belt is where all the extractive mining happens. And what you see is a kind of really intense political struggle between uh, people seeking their independence, people seeking to maintain their control over the, the resources and the places that they feel are theirs by right, but really it's only because of their, their ancestors and their geographical position. Insane things happen. Well, without too many spoilers, literally planet-changing things happen, and you see cultures change overnight. And yet all of these massive events that are taking place on a galactic scale are all full of very, very recognisable people who you can imagine meeting and talking to and even have a kind of, this kind of sense of humour that we today would have. I can't recommend it enough. That's The Expanse. And that is the end of the show, and it's my last Oh God, What Now of the Year. So thank you to everyone for listening, and thanks to Marie Lacant. Thank you. To Tom Peck. A pleasure as always. And thanks to Ahir Shah. Thank you. Listeners, remember, you can always get the podcast a little early when you back us on Patreon and you will get a shout out as well. Although it might take a while for us to get around to you because it's a bit of a backlog. Here's the legendary corner shop with our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and some thanks to Patreon people, wherever you may be. Hello and happy Christmas from me to Rona Murray, Chris Camp, Steph, Roz Rottersley, Carleen H. Garpuri, Joff and Michael Windsor. Merry Christmas and a big thank you from me to Mark Slade, Ross, Christopher King, Nick Watts, Ingrid, Mark Durston, Craig McManus and Stephen Ringrose. And hello and happy winter of all from me to Benjamin Dyke, Ingrid Sigerson, Thomas Fraser, Magdalena Simonieka, Orla Keen, Justin White, Anna McDuff and Mark Pereira. We'll see you on Friday or maybe even Thursday. Happy Christmas. Oh God, what now? It was presented by Andrew Harrison with Marie LeConte, Ahir Shah and Tom Peck. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers are Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson with additional production by Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. <laughs>